Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 53 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. This week, we continue through Mary and Halcombe's account of the woman in white through the seven days leading up to the wedding date between Laura Fairley and Sir Percival Glyde. Let us begin. December the 16th. A whole fortnight has passed, and I have not once opened these pages. I have been long enough away from my journal to come back to it with a healthier and better mind, I hope, so far as Sir Percival is concerned. There is not much to record over the past two weeks. The dresses are almost finished, and the new travelling trunks have been sent here from London. Poor dear Laura hardly leaves me for a moment all day, and last night... When neither of us could sleep, she came and crept into my bed to talk to me there. I shall lose you soon, Marion, she said. I must make the most of you while I can. They are to be married at Limeridge Church, and thank heaven, not one of the neighbors is to be invited to the ceremony. The only visitor will be our old friend, Mr. Arnold, who is coming from Pelesdian to give Laura away her uncle being far too delicate to trust himself outside the door in such inclement weather as we now have. If I were not determined, from this day forth, to see nothing but the bright side of her prospects, the melancholy absence of any male relative of Laura's at the most important moment of her life would make me very gloomy and very distrustful of the future. But I've done with gloom and distrust. That is to say... I've done with writing about either the one or the other in this journal. Sir Percival is to arrive tomorrow. He offered, in case we wish to treat him on terms of rigid etiquette, to write and ask our clergyman to grant him the hospitality of the rectory during the short period of his sojourn at Limeridge before the marriage. Under the circumstances, neither Mr. Fairley nor I thought it at all necessary for us to trouble ourselves about attending to trifling forms and ceremonies. In our wild moorland country, and in this great lonely house, we may well claim to be beyond the reach of the trivial conventionalities which hamper people in other places. I wrote to Sir Percival to thank him for his polite offer, and to beg that he would occupy his old rooms, just as usual, at Limeridge House. December the 17th. He arrived today, looking, as I thought, a little worn and anxious, but still talking and laughing like a man in the best possible spirits. He brought with him some really beautiful presents and jewellery, which Laura received with her best grace, and, outwardly at least, with perfect self-possession. The only sign I can detect of the struggle it must cost her to preserve appearances at this trying time expresses itself in a sudden unwillingness on her part, ever to be left alone. Instead of retreating to her own room as usual, she seems to dread going there. When I went upstairs today after lunch to put on my bonnet for a walk, she volunteered to join me, and again, before dinner, she threw the door open between our two rooms so that we might talk to each other while we were dressing. Keep me always doing something, she said. Keep me always in company with somebody. Don't let me think. That is all I ask now, Marion. Don't let me think. This sad change in her only increases her attractions for Sir Percival, 
He interprets it, as I can see, to his own advantage. There's a feverish flush in her cheeks, a feverish brightness in her eyes, which he welcomes as the return of her beauty and the recovery of her spirits. She talked today at dinner with a gaiety and carelessness so false, so shockingly out of her character, that I secretly longed to silence her and take her away. Sir Percival's delight and surprise appeared to be beyond all expression. The anxiety which I had noticed on his face when he arrived totally disappeared from it, and he looked, even to my eyes, a good ten years younger than he really is. There can be no doubt, though some strange perversity prevents me from seeing it myself, there can be no doubt that Laura's future husband is a very handsome man. Regular features form a personal advantage to begin with, and he has them. Bright brown eyes, either in man or woman, are a great attraction, and he has them. Even boldness, when it is only boldness over the forehead, as in his case, is rather becoming than not in a man, for it heightens the head and adds intelligence of the face. Grace and ease of movement, untiring animation of manner, ready, pliant, conversational powers, all these are unquestionable merits, and all these he certainly possesses. Surely Mr. Gilmore, ignorant as he is of Laura's secret, was not to blame for feeling surprised that she should repent of her marriage engagement. Anyone else in his place would have shared our good old friend's opinion. If I were asked, this moment, to say plainly what defects I have discovered in Sir Percival, I could only point out two. One is incessant restlessness and excitability, which may be caused naturally enough by unusual energy of character. The other, his short, sharp, ill-tempered manner of speaking to the servants, which may be only a bad habit after all. No, I cannot dispute it, and will not dispute it. Sir Percival is a very handsome and very agreeable man. There! I have written it down at last, and I am glad it's over. December the 18th. Feeling weary and depressed this morning, I left Laura with Mrs. Vesey, and went out alone for one of my brisk midday walks, which I have discontinued too much of late. I took the dry, airy road over the moor that leads to Todd's Corner. After having been out a half an hour, I was excessively surprised to see Sir Percival approaching me from the direction of the farm. He was walking rapidly, swinging his stick, his head erect as usual, and his shooting jacket flying open in the wind. When we met, he did not wait for me to ask any questions. He told me at once that he had been to the farm to inquire if Mr. or Mrs. Todd had received any tidings since his last visit to Limeridge of Anne Catherick. You found, of course, that they had heard nothing, I said. Nothing whatever, he replied. I begin to be seriously afraid that we have lost her. Do you happen to know, he continued, looking me in the face very attentively, if the artist, Mr. Hartwright, is in a position to give any further information? He has neither heard of her nor seen her since he left Cumberland, I answered. Very sad, said Sir Percival, speaking like a man who is disappointed, and yet, oddly enough, looking at the same time, 
like a man who is relieved. It is impossible to say what misfortunes may not have happened to the miserable creature. I am inexpressibly annoyed at the failure of all of my efforts to restore her to the care and protection which she so urgently needs. This time, he really looked annoyed. I said a few sympathizing words, and we then talked of other subjects on our way back to the house. Surely my chance meeting with him on the moor has disclosed another favorable trait in his character. Surely it was singularly considerate and unselfish of him to think of Anne Catherick on the eve of his marriage, and to go all the way to Todd's Corner to make inquiries about her, when he might have passed the time so much more agreeably in Laura's society. Considering that he can only have acted from motives of pure charity, his conduct, under the circumstances, shows unusual good feeling, and deserves extraordinary praise. Well, I give him extraordinary praise, and there's an end of it. December the 19th. More discoveries in the inexhaustible mine of Sir Percival's virtues. Today, I approach the subject of my proposed sojourn under his wife's roof when he brings her back to England. I had hardly dropped my first hint in this direction before he caught me warmly by the hand and said I had made the very offer to him which he had been, on his side, most anxious to make to me. I was the companion of all others whom he most sincerely longed to secure for his wife, and he begged me to believe that I had conferred a lasting favor on him by making the proposal to live with Laura after her marriage, exactly as I had always lived with her before it. When I had thanked him in her name and mine for his considerate kindness to both of us, we passed next to the subject of his wedding tour and began to talk of the English society in Rome, to which Laura was to be introduced. He ran over the names of several friends whom he expected to meet abroad this winter. They were all English, as well as I can remember, with one exception. The one exception was Count Fosco. The mention of the Count's name, and the discovery that he and his wife are likely to meet the bride and bridegroom on the continent, puts Laura's marriage for the first time in a distinctly favorable light. It is likely to be the means of healing a family feud. Hitherto, Madame Fosco has chosen to forget her obligations as Laura's aunt out of sheer spite against the late Mr. Fairley for his conduct in the affair of the legacy. Now, however, she can persist in this course of conduct no longer. Sir Percival and Count Fosco are old and fast friends, and their wives will have no choice but to meet on civil terms. Madame Fosco, in her maiden days, was one of the most impertinent women I'd ever met with, capricious, exacting, and vain to the last degree of absurdity. If her husband has succeeded in bringing her to her senses, he deserves the gratitude of every member of the family, and he may have mine to begin with. I'm becoming anxious to know the Count. He is the most intimate friend of Laura's husband, and in that capacity, he excites my strongest interests. Neither Laura nor I have ever seen him. All I know of him is that his accidental presence years ago on the steps of the Trinita del Monte at Rome assisted Sir Percival's escape from robbery and assassination at the critical moment when he was wounded in the hand and might the next instant have been wounded in the heart. 
I remember also that, at the time of the late Mr. Fairley's absurd objections to his sister's marriage, the Count wrote him a very temperate and sensible letter on the subject, which, I am ashamed to say, remained unanswered. This is all I know of Sir Percival's friend. I wonder if he will ever come to England. I wonder if I shall like him. My pen is running away into mere speculation. Let me return to sober matter-of-fact. It is certain that Sir Percival's reception of my venturesome proposal to live with his wife was more than kind. It was almost affectionate. I am sure Laura's husband will have no reason to complain of me if I can only go on as I have begun. I have already declared him to be handsome, agreeable, full of good feeling towards the unfortunate, and full of affectionate kindness towards me. Really, I hardly know myself again in my new character of Sir Percival's warmest friend. December the 20th. I hate Sir Percival. I flatly deny his good looks. I consider him to be eminently ill-tempered and disagreeable, and totally wanting in kindness and good feeling. Last night, the cards for the married people were sent home. Laura opened the packet and saw her future name in print for the first time. Sir Percival looked over her shoulder familiarly at the new card, which had already transformed Miss Fairley into Lady Glyde, smiled with the most odious self-complacency, and whispered something in her ear. I don't know what it was. Laura has refused to tell me. But I saw her face turn to such a deadly whiteness that I thought she would have fainted. He took no notice of the change. He seemed to be barbarously unconscious that he had said anything to pain her. All my old feelings of hostility towards him revived on the instant, and all the hours that have passed since have done nothing to dissipate them. I am more unreasonable and more unjust than ever. In three words, how glibly my pen writes them. In three words, I hate him. December the 21st. Have the anxieties of this anxious time shaken me a little, at last? I've been writing for the last few days in a tone of levity, which, heaven knows, is far enough from my heart, and which it has rather shocked me to discover on looking back at the entries in my journal. Perhaps I may have caught the feverish excitement of Laura's spirits for the last week. If so, the fit has already passed away from me, and has left me in a very strange state of mind. A persistent idea has been forcing itself on my attention ever since last night, that something will yet happen to prevent the marriage. What has produced this singular fancy? Is it the indirect result of my apprehensions for Laura's future? Or has it been unconsciously suggested to me by the increasing restlessness and irritability which I have certainly observed in Sir Percival's manner as the wedding day draws nearer and nearer? Impossible to say. I know that I have the idea, surely the wildest idea, under the circumstances, that have ever entered a woman's head. But try as I may, I cannot trace it back to its source. This last day has been all confusion and wretchedness. How can I write about it? And yet, I must write. Anything is better than brooding over my own gloomy thoughts. Kind Mrs. Vesey, whom we have all too much overlooked and forgotten of late, 
innocently caused us a sad morning to begin with. She has been, for months past, secretly making a warm Shetland shawl for her dear pupil, a most beautiful and surprising piece of work to be done by a woman at her age and with her habits. The gift was presented this morning, and poor warm-hearted Laura completely broke down when the shawl was put proudly on her shoulders by the loving old friend and guardian of her motherless childhood. I was hardly allowed time to quiet them both, or to even dry my own eyes, when I was sent for by Mr. Fairley to be favoured with a long recital of his arrangements for the preservation of his own tranquillity on the wedding day. Dear Laura was to receive his present, a shabby ring with her affectionate uncle's hair for an ornament instead of a precious stone and with a heartless French inscription inside about congenial sentiments and eternal friendship. Dear Laura was to receive this tender tribute from my hands immediately so that she might have plenty of time to recover from the agitation produced by the gift before she appeared into Mr. Fairley's presence. Dear Laura was to pay him a little visit that evening and to be kind enough not to make a scene. Dear Laura was to pay him another little visit in her wedding dress the next morning and to be kind enough again not to make a scene. Dear Laura was to look in once more for the third time before going away, without harrowing his feelings by saying when she was going away, and without tears, in the name of pity, and in the name of everything, dear Marian, that is most affectionate and most domestic and most delightfully charmingly self-composed, without tears. I was so exasperated by this miserable selfish trifling at such a time that I should certainly have shocked Mr. Fairley by some of the hardest and rudest truths he has ever heard in his life if the arrival of Mr. Arnold from Pelesdian had not called me away to new duties downstairs. The rest of the day is indescribable. I believe no one in the house really knew how it passed. The confusion of small events all huddled together one on the other, bewildered everybody. There were dresses sent home that had been forgotten. There were trunks to be packed and unpacked and packed again. There were presents from friends far and near, friends high and low. We were all needlessly hurried, all nervously expectant of the morrow. Sir Percival especially was too restless now to remain five minutes together in the same place. That short, sharp cough of his troubled him more than ever. He was in and out of the doors all day long, and he seemed to grow so inquisitive on a sudden that he questioned the very strangers who came on small errands to the house. Add to all this the one perpetual thought in Laura's mind and mine that we were to part the next day, and the haunting dread unexpressed by either of us, and yet ever-present to both, that this deplorable marriage might prove to be the one fatal error of her life and the one hopeless sorrow of mine. For the first time, in all the years of our close and happy intercourse, we almost avoided looking each other in the face, and we refrained, by common consent, from speaking together in private through the whole evening. I can dwell on it no longer. 
whatever future sorrows may be in store for me, I shall always look back on this 21st of December as the most comfortless and most miserable day of my life. I'm writing these lines in the solitude of my own room, long after midnight, having just come back from a stolen look at Laura in her pretty little white bed, the bed she has occupied since the days of her girlhood. There she lay, unconscious that I was looking at her, quiet, more quiet than I dared to hope, but not sleeping. The glimmer of the nightlight showed me that her eyes were only partially closed. The traces of tears glistened between her eyelids. My little keepsake, only a brooch, lay on a table at her bedside with her prayer book and the miniature portrait of her father which she takes with her whenever she goes. I waited a moment, looking at her from behind her pillow as she lay beneath me, with one arm and hand resting on the white coverlid, so still, so quietly breathing, that the frill on her nightdress never moved. I waited, looking at her, as I have seen her thousands of times, as I shall never see her again, and then stole back to my own room. My own love, with all your wealth and all your beauty, how friendless you are. The one man who would give his heart's life to serve you is far away, tossing this stormy night on the awful sea. Who else is left to you? No father, no brother, no living creature but the helpless, useless woman who writes these sad lines and watches by you for the morning in sorrow that she cannot compose in doubt that she cannot conquer. Oh, what a trust it is to be placed in that man's hands tomorrow. If ever he forgets it, if ever he injures a hair of her head. The 22nd of December, 7 o'clock. A wild, unsettled morning. She has just risen, better and calmer now that the time has come than she was yesterday. 10 o'clock. She is dressed. We have kissed each other. We have promised each other not to lose courage. I am away for a moment in my own room. In the whirl and confusion of my thoughts, I can detect that strange fancy of some hindrance happening to stop the marriage still hanging about my mind. Is it hanging about his mind, too? I see him from the window, moving hither and thither uneasily among the carriages at the door. How can I write such folly? The marriage is a certainty. In less than half an hour, we start for the church. Eleven o'clock. It is all over. They are married. Three o'clock. They are gone. I am blind with crying. I can write no more. The first epoch of the story closes here. Okay. I hate to be beating a dead horse here, but I think you know what I'm going to start talking about first. That's right. Sir Percival Glyde. Why? Because his actions and his words 
super suspicious. Yet again, if I could entitle this episode anything other than what it's entitled, I would entitle it Red Flags of Sir Percival Glyde, Part 16. Because here's what happened. Marion Halcombe is understandably distressed by Laura's marriage because she senses the whole thing is a little bit, you know, whatever. And at this point, she's trying to think the best of the situation, which, bless her heart, I'll let her do. But she meets Sir Percival on the road to Todd's Corner, and he's coming back from it. And what is he doing? Checking up on the whereabouts of Anne Catherick. What? Why? That's really suspicious. Because I don't know how many grooms-to-be, or husbands-to-be, or whatever you want to call them, are doing five days before their wedding. But I can guarantee you they're not trying to track down a ghostly white woman who haunts their past. It's just not going to happen. If I was in his position and Laura Fairley was truly the love of my life, I can guarantee you folks, my heart and mind would almost exclusively be focused on being finally wedded to my bride, my wife. And I would be anxious, nervous, excited, and happy all the same time, and it would be great. But what is Sir Percival doing? He's checking up on another woman. Very red flaggy. Second thing, okay, when Marion approaches him to ask about if she can you know, move in with them after they're married and after their honeymoon is over. And Sir Percival's like, oh yeah, I was actually thinking about that this entire time. Uh-huh. Sure you were, Percy. I see you, man. Here's what I'm thinking. You know that Marion is the only one who can calm this Laura character down. You don't actually love Laura at this point. You love Laura's money. And Laura needs to be entertained in some way with somebody who's close to her. And you know that Marion and Laura are like two peas in a pod, half-sisters. And she needs somebody. You're not completely heartless. And so you invite her along the way. Mm. Bless Marion's heart, but she's trying to think of the best of things in this moment. And, well, I did not like her for it. I did not like her describing Sir Percival, a 40-year-old man who is two times older than Laura. Laura's 20 at this point, keep in mind. And she's like, well, he is actually attractive. But she repeats this refrain after speaking about the attractiveness of Sir Percival. She says, well, there I said it. It's over. Which I think in her mind, she's trying to convince herself that Sir Percival isn't actually a bad guy, which he is. So, hmm. Yeah, conflict Thankfully, two days later, or wait, 18th, 19th, 20th, three days later, 
she finally comes to her senses and reminds herself that Sir Percival is from the devil and she should be infuriated with him because of how he upsets Laura in the most barbarous way, as she puts it. And I would agree, whatever he whispered into her ear, if I whispered something into my bride-to-be's ear and all of a sudden she, like, became visibly distressed, I'd be like, uh-oh. And I try to figure out what I, why what I said was stupid and correct it. But he doesn't do anything. He's an emotionless creature. And by the way, he cares about the welfare of Anne Catherick more than he does about his bride-to-be. Hmm. Third thing that's red flaggy is their honeymoon to Rome. Okay? This whole thing is like 5,200 red flags because of Count Fosco. Now, if you'll remember, let's recap from Gilmore's account, since you probably don't remember. Fosco married Laura's father's sister, okay? Laura's aunt. Fosco married Laura's aunt. Philip Fairley, Laura's father, <laughs> Philip Fairley, who's a racist, unfortunately, didn't like that his sister married a foreigner, and so he cut her out of the will, but then Laura pleaded with him, so he put her back into the will resentingly so much that she wouldn't receive her inheritance, Laura's aunt, Eleanor, until Laura died first which is not going to be likely. But if Laura dies and Eleanor dies before Laura dies, all the inheritance goes to Laura's cousin Magdalene. So once again, I'm a little suspicious about this Magdalene character, even though she probably has nothing to do with this plotline other than to describe the succession of the inheritance. But it makes for good content, so we're just going to demonize Magdalene for a little bit. But anyway, <laughs> um, that's who... This is all related to, because Count Fosco is married to Laura's aunt. Laura's aunt's probably not in the best of moods with everybody. So I think what is happening is Sir Percival is a businessman at heart. And what he's trying to do is smooth over the ruffles to prevent Eleanor from killing Laura first. <laughs> so <laughs> here's, here's my twisted scheme here. Here's what Sir Percival's going to do. We're going to find out that Eleanor mysteriously died on this trip. And Laura, you know, is like super distressed about it, yada, yada, yada. Sir Percival's like, oh my gosh, it was the weirdest thing. She got stabbed, you know, or something. <laughs> In all seriousness, Sir Percival is probably trying to smooth over the edges so that Eleanor doesn't go after Laura. And since... So Percival is really good friends with Count Fosco. I think it'll all work out. Now that you're thoroughly confused about the entire relationship, I want to put my thoughts together on this assassination business because this is the first time I've heard of it. The assassination and robbery of Sir Percival Glyde was prevented by Count Fosco, which is why they're such good friends. And I think I know who the assassin was. Tongue-in-cheek, I think it was Anne Catherick. And I think that's why Sir Percival Glyde 
is trying to put her away because she tried to murder him and don't know why, but she's obviously in a poor mental state at this point. So he puts her into a mental health facility. I, I mean, I think that's I think that's a fairly logical assumption to make. Now that you've heard all of my conspiracy theories, let us conclude this episode because the first epoch or the first age of this story has ended. The year 1849 will no longer be discussed and the events thereof. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. And as they say in show business, that's all she wrote for now.